the journalism industry is not exactly a growth industry. It's dying all over the world, except for a few big global outlets. And the prospect of a news wire that has nearly 200 bureaus around the world providing you coverage for a much less than AP or Reuters and is appealing. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm Chris Park from Johns Hopkins SICE. You're joining us for a discussion on a new book, Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World, written by Joshua Kurlancic. For our regular listeners, Josh has been on a previous episode on a post-Duterte Philippines. Today, he will talk about how China has strived to become a global media and information powerhouse and whether this quest has been successful. Joshua Kurlancic is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was previously a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he studied Southeast Asian politics and China's relations with Southeast Asia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Well, uh, thanks, Josh, so much for joining us again on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, as always. Our conversation today is on your new book, uh, Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World, which discusses China's attempt at influencing media around the world. To situate our discussion today, why did you write this book and why did you write it now? Well, I mean, I actually started working on it like five years ago. Um, and five or six years ago, um, I, what I thought at the time was that China was building, trying to build a globe, a two pronged global media apparatus. Um, one expanding and modernizing their state media, like China radio international, Xinhua, CGTN, the big state media outlets and, and two trying to gain through proxies, greater control of the Chinese language media within a lot of countries. The book also talks about other efforts for um, by China to influence the politics and societies of other countries around the world, which um, uh, is a major theme of the, of the book, that for the first time since the Mao era, China is really trying to influence the domestic politics of a lot of countries. Um, uh, but... Um, what I found, uh, um, as the research went on, um, was that, and especially not so much the research, but, um, the, just the events of the last couple of years, both the research and the events, um, was that a lot of what I thought, which was that China was really becoming successful in building up its state media and making them real alternatives to other global media outlets um, wasn't necessarily as successful as I had thought. One, they hadn't, um, they hadn't really built them into quality journalism other than Xinhua, and they hadn't really gotten much viewer or reader or listener share other than Xinhua. They just remained kind of turgid propaganda. Um, and then second, and, and that has been further undermined by the 
events the last three years where China's efforts to influence politics and societies in other countries have been found out by a lot of countries, which leads to blowback. And then secondly, part of what China was doing in uh, trying to appeal to other countries is just to promote itself as a something of an alternative model of development. And that's, that's really not working right now with China kind of scrambling with zero COVID and protests and a weak, fairly weak economy. Um, and so what I've, what, what I found out was sort of more of like a mixed picture, like some of their, um, global media efforts, like expanding Xinhua and trying to get Xinhua to be picked up by a lot of local news outlets in countries have been pretty successful as has um, China, pro, sort of pro-China owners control now control most of the Chinese language media in most countries around the world. So that has been successful. That's kind of like a backdoor effort. Um, some of their efforts to influence students and civil societies in places have been successful. The big state media outlets, except for Xinhua, have really, I think, f- failed to really, despite in- enormous investment, and for a while they hired a lot of really excellent journalists, have mostly failed to have much impact on the, on the global stage, really, at, at all. They're, they're, the numbers of viewers that they pick up or, or, or for China Radio International listeners is so small, even, not necessarily just in liberal democracies, but even in places where there might you would think they might have more appeal or where they had really spent a lot of money like Africa and Southeast Asia, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, the central argument that, as you, you know, uh, just really well summarized that I took away from the book was, you know, China has made tremendous amount of efforts to become a media and information superpower, uh, both in its backyard, like you said, in Southeast Asia, uh, but even in countries like Australia, Japan, Taiwan, and uh, perhaps in Western Europe as well. And but this efforts, as the title suggests, uneven uh, campaign often have uh, failed despite these large investments. So the next half hour, I wanted to break down this fascinating argument for our listeners. And I wanted to start by what you mentioned. Um, uh, the, I guess the first part of your argument. What is China looking to get out of a global media offensive? What is Beijing's big objective here? Well, I mean, I think it's more than a global media offensive that I talk about in the book. It's, I think if you expand it more broadly to information as well, which includes, um, includes you know, trying to provide more of the information infrastructure like Huawei and other countries like that, um, uh, sorry, other companies like that, which are either um, state companies like ZTE or Huawei, which isn't a state company, but has questionable links to the military and the state. Um, so that's another part of it. Uh, of And then a, a, another prong is, use, is trying to wield power on major information platforms globally on social media platforms. Um, so there's a bunch of different prongs, but I think the overall goal, sorry, just to get back to your original question, multiple overall goals. Um, one, 
China, I think, felt like the Chinese government um, felt like they were, even though they were becoming the second most powerful country in the world and the second biggest economy, um, they had little ability to shape global narratives um, that were mostly shaped by, those narratives were shaped by leaders and the media of leading liberal democracies. And that the, by creating their own media that would be respected, kind of like an Al Jazeera, which again, I don't think has really worked except with Xinhua, they would have a better ability to shape global narratives. Um, I mean, I think second, they wanted to try to, Xi Jinping wanted to, in some countries, the Chinese government wants to directly influence the politics and societies of those countries, tamp down criticism of China, shift the, those countries' policies, and um, have both more pro-Beijing sentiment among the public and also actually alter uh, foreign policy. Um, third, I think there's she is really the first leader since the Mao era to, decide, to declare that China wanted to export its kind of model of authoritarian capitalism, although the last three years has really, really weakened, really, really weakened um, that ability um, it, because of, uh, you know, the, the flaws in that, in that model have now become a, apparent. The, uh, the brittleness of it, the uh, siloing of it, the move away from consensus authoritarianism um, to basically one man rule, consensus authoritarianism, which prevailed under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, which is more flexible and able to respond to crises because yeah, not everything was in the hands of one person. Um, so like with the SARS crisis in 2003, 2004, China did not respond well at first. That was in Hu Jintao's time. Um, but they did flex of, were flexible enough to change and finally respond to it. Um, and now their, their model is being exposed as highly problematic as well as she is actually undermining the model by undermining some of China's most effective private sector companies. So, but anyway, just to recap, have their say in global narratives so that they're not totally dominated by liberal dem democratic leaders and Western, let's not say Western, but democratic media outlets like the New York Times and the BBC and Kyoto and um, Joe Rogan and whoever, be... Um, actually interchange the politics and policies of some countries, uh, as well as the public opinion of China. C, protect the party from criticism by foreign publics and foreign leaders. Um, D, try to export China's developmental model. Those are the main four, I would say. Right. Uh, I, I want to touch on the point about Al Jazeera that you mentioned, which you right. argue that China wanted CGTN, a state-run English-language news channel, to become like Qatar's Al Jazeera. And I have used Al Jazeera in my research projects, even though, of course, it is owned by the uh, monarchy of Qatar. Why has China not been successful in replicating Al Jazeera's success? Um. Yeah, I mean, I've used Al Jazeera too. I just did a really good interview with Al Jazeera that's up online. And so there's a couple of reasons. First of all, Al Jazeera is based in authoritarian monarchy. Um, um, but that monarch, you know, and so that 
the country where it is owned and and based is not free and Al Jazeera would not, you're not going to see on Al Jazeera like stories about the monarchy of Qatar. You're not not even going to see stories about um, some of the problems with the, you know, with with the World Cup, Um, like the massive use of migrant labor, some of them have been abused. And you're not going to see a few other things like Qatar has their own views about certain other countries in the Middle East. You probably won't see that. But in the rest of the world, outside of a very narrow area, Qatar is a, you know, I mean, it's a power. It's, it has some power because it's super rich and has a ton of gas. And But it's still a tiny country. And 98% of stories outside of the Middle East have nothing to do with Qatar unless you're writing a story about it's a weird time to be saying Qatar has no influence while the World Cup is going on in Qatar, but unless you're writing about like the gas industry, if you're a reporter in Latin America or Southeast Asia or whatever, United States, you can report freely for Al Jazeera basically because the Qatar the Qatari government is not controlling what you write, and they have hired a lot of excellent journalists. Um, you know, like their work in Southeast Asia is really really excellent. Um, I, I I very much doubt that um, the censors in Qatar are having any role at all in like their Southeast Asia coverage, for example, or their Latin American coverage, which is very good. Um, and the that's just not possible really with China, I think. Um, I think that uh, virtually almost not every story, but most stories in the world, many stories in the world, can be somehow linked to China. Like the New York Times just launched a new beat, China in the world. And so you can't just segment off things the way the Qatar government um, has. Um, And then secondly, Qatar has allowed a much freer hand on Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera reporters in most of the world are not afraid that they're gonna be arrested they have tons and tons of foreign nationals who aren't from Qatar anyway, but they're going to be arrested or something's going to happen to them if they report on, on whatever they're reporting on. Whereas China, especially as it, has, it has become more autocratic under Xi Jinping, has really put a damper on CGTN and CRI, a little bit less so in Xinhua, where reporters are terrified. And so they can't, that anything they write about is going to lead to... Um, I mean, Chinese national reporters, which is almost all of them, because the foreign reporters who worked for CGTN and CRI have mostly quit as China's become more authoritarian. These Chinese reporters are terrified that anything they do is going to get them in trouble. So that just leads to turgid, boring journalism, basically. As we talk about this turgid, boring journalism... Yeah, sorry to keep uh, saying the word turgid. I'll I'll figure a different (laughs) word. No, but it's a it, it's that's a frame, uh, you know, an interesting frame as to how we view Xinhua, how we view CGTN, and which raises another question, um, which is that you know another tactic t- that you wrote about that China has been using to gain global media influence and you know information influence is trying to get other publications to pick up stories written by you know Xinhua, uh, another official state news agency. Why, what right. news organizations are signing these content sharing agreements and why are they doing this? Okay, well, Xinhua, I think, is the exception that 
that Xinhua has been more successful than the other ones because with like CGTN or CRI, the, the, with the TV and the radio station, you have to actively seek them out. You know, like you have to, you have to, um, I mean, you don't have to, I guess you could just walk into a room and be on, but, but basically you have to seek them out, like turn on your TV, turn on your radio, whatever, and then look for it. Where Xinhua just sort of appears um, in the news sites and newspapers of many publications around the world and increasingly has signed content sharing agreements with a lot of news outlets in Southeast Asia and even major news outlets like AFP and Germany's main state news outlet. And so it appears in these outlets and um, people just read it. Um, uh, sometimes it, it's credited to Xinhua. Um, sometimes uh, it, there's no accreditation at all. Um, but even when it's credited to Xinhua, most people don't really pay attention to who are not journalists don't, or real media elites don't pay that much attention to um, the bylines. And so Xinhua increasingly has crept into the sort of news diet in local languages of countries in Southeast Asia and Africa and, and other places. Um, why are they signing these content share agreements? Well, I talk about that in the book. Um, one reason that Xinhua is cheaper than the AP or Reuters or Bloomberg, and in some places the Chinese government provides it free, so that's a huge boon. Um, the journalism industry is not exactly a growth industry. It's dying all over the world, except for a few big global outlets. And the prospect of a news wire that has nearly 200 bureaus around the world providing you coverage for a much less than AP or Reuters and is appealing. Xinhua also in some places like in Africa and Southeast Asia has hired so many reporters that they are able to do a lot of work on local stories that um, the AP or Reuters don't just don't have the, the, the um, manpower or woman power to do. So like in Thailand, Xinhua does a lot of stories about local stuff that the AP can't possibly cover and they don't have the resources to cover. And then Xinhua recycles those stories and they're picked up by Thai publications in Thai. And so you have them. And some of those stories may have something to do with China. And so the concern in the long run is, I think, more Xinhua than CGTN or CRI, that if Xinhua becomes a more widely accepted newswire published in outlets all over the world, it looks very similar to the AP or Reuters or um, AFP or Kyoto or whatever, but it really, on China issues, it's really still a state-run propaganda organ. And so um, that is a huge concern. But I mean, I think countries are signing, uh, companies are signing these deals because A, it's cheap or free and it's it, it provides a lot of content. In some places, they may be providing, signing them like with AFP or others in, in order to placate the Chinese government and continue to get Xinhua's coverage of China. Xinhua does do coverage of things in China, like official events and news that foreign reporters, there and there are very few foreign reporters left in China, may not be able to access. But Xinhua is definitely much more of a success for China and could be a real challenge than the other two big state 
the other state media outlets, which have I think have mostly failed to, I mean, to make a global impact. Mm-hmm. So what what I'm hearing is that perhaps the Al Jazeera model might not be for China. Rather, you know, perhaps being a you know reputable or a up and coming uh, newswire service that may actually be the model to gain uh, more of a global influence. But for our listeners, can you explain what's the difference between Al Jazeera? And or you know New York Times, Washington Post, these publications, and what you said, a Newswire, Associated Press, and potentially oh, Xinhua. Sure. So I mean the a Newswire, which is really like Bloomberg, AP, Reuters, etc. Um, you is usually um, an organization that has bureaus in virtually every country in the world. Um, and compared to say like the New York Times, which selectively rep, you know reports on the biggest stories and fe- of of the day, but also does lots of features and other sections and etc. The Newswire is historically like the AP, which is uh, or the Reuters or Bloomberg or Kyoto or Algeria France Press or there are many others. Um, the big global newswires they they just do like. They try to just provide the like uh, straight news and as fast as possible about events happening all over the world. So, like, I actually worked for Agence France Press for a little while in Bangkok. They're not interest. There's not really a focus on features or mostly anything other than hard news. They do they do sports coverage and, and some economics coverage, but. They just try to get the stories out in each country first about events that are happening, and they're very sort of bare bones. Um, I guess they're called wires because they originally would send these stories by like tele telegraph, I think. Um, and the stories are very bare bones, five hundred, six hundred words at most, just tell you you know what has happened. Like a uh, plane has crashed in Indonesia, and here's like. They want to be first. It's more important that they be first and right to them than that they produce some long feature. And then they will keep updating those stories. Um, so they kind of provide the first draft of journalism about a lot of global stories. Um, but there's not an effort to um, go at more than five or 600 words. And in fact, a lot of times their stories are shorter. The, effort, the goal is to be everywhere and be first. Um, and those stories are then most major news outlets subscribe to these newswires. So the New York Times, like, even though they have reporters all over the world, they might not have the first person at some plane crash in Indonesia, even though they have some Southeast Asia reporters. So they might first use like the Associated Press's coverage because the Associated Press is a reporter in Indonesia, maybe was the first to get to the plane crash. They might first use that and run that along their site and then eventually get their own reporters there and then report their own story. But the newswires are usually first to breaking news stories and often almost always provide those breaking news stories. And so most major news outlets feel like they have to have a subscription to at least some of the the newswires because they need breaking news coverage of events that are happening. Um, and that, so that's the difference in a newswire and like a, a newspaper or a news site, which isn't trying to cover everything in the world as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. 
so, you know, Xinhua has this global cadre of reporters trying to be everywhere, trying to be there first and get, to get stories out about all the events that are happening. So, you know, you, you said earlier that, you know, people, you know, don't really read the bylines carefully, don't read the fine prints on Most articles people, carefully. Yeah. I mean, I think some, some, there, there's some exceptions, mm-hmm. like for columnists who are famous or, you know, or, um, uh, people might read columns for people who are, f- and and know who the re- columnists are. But for reporters, not most people. I don't. Th- I mean, media people might re- read it, but most people don't know who even the reporters are at like huge outlets like the New York Times, let mm-hmm. alone the news newswires. Where it's <laughs> the newswires are sort of designed to be kind of like a faceless um, entity where they just provide the stories. Um, they sometimes give individual bylines to people and sometimes they don't. So yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, most, I don't think people pay attention to the bylines of reporters on articles. No. Yeah. So, but for the people that are looking at it, does it matter if they're seeing, you know, if it's from, if an article is from the Associated Press versus Xinhua, are people trusting the article when they see Xinhua provided the wire for a given article? Well, that's impossible to tell be, because I haven't seen polling done. I think that on that, I think there is in the studies that I, the Gallup polling that I FOIA'd and found that was commissioned by the U.S. government that it mostly focused on CGTN and CRI and not on Xinhua. Um, I think in the countries in Southeast Asia where Xinhua has been adopted more by Southeast Asian outlets, its trust level is probably lower than the news wires, the non-Xinhua news wires among savvy readers. Yes, I think the trust level is probably lower, um, somewhat lower, um, although um, perhaps not as low as one might think. And I think that the last like five to 10 years of pro- serious dysfunction in democratic countries, including among and attacks on the media and democratic countries, including some of these very media outlets, New York Times, but also the wires, has filtered into sort of a global distrust of the media in general. And that that helps outlets like Xinhua, or at least until the US cracked down, for example, or some countries cracked down, it helped Russia's and the, and the war in Ukraine, it helped Russia's outlets because if people just trust every media outlet, then they might feel that they can read a Xinhua article and it provides some perspective that's different than, uh, I mean, not a perspective, but they provide something and it's no different than AP, which is they've lost trust in as well, or the New York Times. You know, trust in the, in the media has declined in most countries around the world in the last five to 10 years. Um, and so that that has an effect. But yes, I think among savvy readers in Southeast Asia and other regions in, in Africa, they know that Xinhua is not as credible as some of the other wires. As Xinhua, but, but remember, not, they're not necessarily, that's not necessarily a large group of people who are checking out where the stories are coming from. So. Mm-hmm. 
I'm also wondering how are Chinese domestic politics or foreign policy practices? I'm thinking zero COVID, which you mentioned earlier. I'm thinking Wolf Warrior diplomats, which you write about. Right. How are those affecting its efforts to gain influence and perhaps undermining their media offensive efforts? Well, those are totally terrible for all of China. Every China's foreign policy and its China's foreign efforts. China's foreign media efforts and China's efforts to influence other countries and China's diplomacy and China's overall image in the world, which is terrible in a lot of countries now. And it's clearly not really very, some of those aspects are not good for the Chinese economy and Chinese people themselves. So those are huge, 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 huge stumbling blocks to the, this global influence effort. Um, the, the just terrible approach to COVID after the initial cover-up and then the initial effective approach, the, the backing into zero COVID and not being able to back to get out of it exposes the brittleness of the Xi rule to the whole world. So that, And one of the things that China was supposed to, supposedly this model, and you can see like even Western commentators like Thomas Freeman talking about this in 2020, one of the supposed advantages of this model of China's model was it was supposed to be highly managerial and therefore and, and not rely on voters, obviously, who can elect, you know, whoever it can elect smart people, can elect morons, whatever. It's the voters will. Um, this Chinese approach is supposed to be managerial, and so it would be like a huge corporation that made the best decisions because they didn't have to worry about voting and et cetera. And um that clearly hasn't happened here because they haven't made the best decisions for society or their economy or anything. Um, the The last three years have also exposed the difference between consensus authoritarianism and one man authoritarianism, both in Russia and China. Like a country like Vietnam, which ha initially had a good response to COVID and then struggled with it, was which is an authoritarian state, but is more of a consensus authoritarian state, has been able to flexibly respond by foreign vaccines, change their policies when necessary, et cetera, because it's not all based on the cult of personality around one person. China has been unable to do that. So it's really undermined the idea that their model of development and the protests have too undermined it. Um, it shows that also the world that this model has so much surveillance and repression. I think people who follow China understood that. And it's not even effective. They're leaving their whole population open to COVID. I think most people who follow China knew about the surveillance <clears throat> and repression, but this has really been exposed to the whole world and it's undermining their growth as well. Um, the wolf warrior diplomacy is just alienating other countries for no real no real reason. Um, it's not helping their foreign policy in any way, unless their foreign policy is simply to, you know, thumb their nose at uh, at other at other countries. So yeah, in all ways, it's undermining it's undermining their global reputation, and that's reflected in um, you know in in surveys and polls, etc. So, so far in our discussion today, we've discussed how China is trying to build its, you know, a, 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 a parallel organization to uh, Al Jazeera. We've also discussed how Xinhua is becoming a growingly prevalent wire service around the world. 
We just discussed how Chinese foreign policy uh, and domestic politics may be undermining Chinese efforts to gain this global information uh, influence. So do you believe that China thinks that its efforts, as you argue, are not succeeding? And if so, is China course correcting? Well, if China, I think Chinese people probably recognize that. Um, I can't read Xinhua's, uh, sorry, I can't read Xi Xi Jinping's mind. I think they, at various times, Xi Jinping seemed to want to back off from the wolf warrior diplomacy. He made a few comments about that, and but he continued to promote the most the most wolf warriorish um, diplomats. So it sort of undermined his irregular speeches about backing off and presenting a more gentle face to the world. They are maybe taking some steps. Excuse me to. Um, back away from zero COVID. Um, but I don't know how they're going to be able to do that while also preserving the cultural personality around Xi Jinping. It's hard to know because everything is in the hands of one person and he surrounded himself with lackeys and loyalists. I think they probably, I don't think they're going to change his crackdown on the private sector, which has been, which predates really zero COVID and has been also a huge problem for their model, but they don't seem to be adapting, but um, they will have to adapt eventually on zero COVID. Otherwise, they can't stay like this forever. In terms of their media offensive, I'm not sure what they can do to CGTN and CRI now. I think that they could adapt Xinhua and continue to expand it. And they have gained a lot by gaining control of the local own Chinese language press in many countries. Um, whether they adapt in other ways, I think it's wrong to write them off because they have adapted at times in the past. But that was under periods where there was less one-man rule. So that makes it harder for them to adapt. To conclude our discussion today, how have liberal democracies like the United States responded to Chinese efforts to gain global media and information influence. Um, Should all these efforts concern uh, the United States? And why should it? Um, Yeah, I mean, sure, it definitely should. Um, I think that ultimately, well, first of all, the United States and a lot of other democracies have already started taking um, some efforts to to crack down. Um, The United States has forced foreign-owned, foreign-state-owned media outlets to, uh, some of them to register with, uh, as foreign agents of foreign influence. And um, Australia and other countries have taken similar approaches to foreign interference. Um, you know, I think there should be clear concern if you have state-owned entities, especially um, engaging in just with no labeling um, on major media, social media platforms. And the broader concerns about China wielding power within other countries, societies is definitely a concern, a huge concern, um, because you have a major authoritarian power potentially wielding power within 
we didn't talk about this much, but within political systems and um, universities and research institutions and things like that, that's a, that's a huge concern. <clears throat> so uh, yeah, there should be concern and um, there should be a response, an immune respo- response, which has already started to happen of more scrutiny, more effective education of citizens of, about digital literacy to understand to have some better understanding, it's impossible to completely understand, but to, to understand, um, you know, what's real and what isn't online, um, uh, efforts to improve the state media, which actually serves as kind of independent media in other countries by liberal democracies, like voice of America, reader free Asia efforts to improve just the quality of democracy, which is too, you know, too, too far to, is too far to explain in great depth here, but the the stronger democracy seems, the less on, it seems like it's on fire in many countries. The weaker China's alternative will seem. Um, those are some initial suggestions. Well, the book is Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's uneven campaign to influence Asia and the world. Thank you so much, Josh, for joining us on the podcast for a fascinating discussion. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.